Hello and welcome to Wrestling with Mark, a Lenten offering from St. James the Less Episcopal for Lent 2021. Good evening and welcome to week three of St. James the Less Episcopal Church's Lenten study. We are studying the gospel according to Mark. Um, if you haven't grabbed your contemporary English Bible study Bible, or excuse me, common English Bible, I keep doing that. <laughs> common English Bible study Bible. There are, we have a, a bunch stacked right outside the office door. You can pick it up at any time. Uh, we'd love to have you join with us. This week we're looking at uh, chapters seven, eight, and nine. Um, and our guest um, commentator is Gay Gibson. She's one of our vestry members and glad to have her with us tonight. Um, thank you. And so, Gay, thank you for um, joining with us. We've had some great conversations the first two weeks. And uh, tonight, uh, we're looking forward to chapters 7, 8, and 9. Um, Harrison has our first reading. Anything else before we get started? All right. Well, let's thank jump right in. Harrison, want to take it away? Yes. Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees and some legal experts from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. They saw some of his disciples eating food with unclean hands. They were eating without first ritually purifying their hands through washing. The Pharisees and all of the Jews don't eat without first washing their hands carefully. This is a way of, of observing the rules handed down to them by the elders. Upon returning from the marketplace, they didn't eat without first immersing themselves. They observed many other rules that they have been that have been handed down, such as the washing of cups and jugs and pans and sleeping mats. And so the Pharisees and legal experts asked Jesus, "Why do your disciples? Why are your disciples not living according to the rules handed down by the elders, but eat instead?" with ritually unclean hands. He replied, Isaiah really knew what he was talking about when he prophesied about you hypocrites. He wrote, this people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. They worship me, their worship of me is empty since they teach instructions that are human words. You ignore God's commandment while holding onto the rules created by humans and handed down to you. Jesus continued, clearly, you are experts at rejecting God's commandment in order to establish these rules. Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and the person who speaks against father or mother will certainly be put to death. But you say, if if you tell your father or mother, everything I'm expected to contribute to you is Corbin, that is a gift I'm giving to God, then you are no longer required to care for your father or mother. In this way, you do away with God's word in favor of the rules handed down to you, which you pass on to others. And you do a lot of other things just like that. The word of the Lord. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm thankful about this one. <laughs> this one's pretty harsh. Um, so what'd you hear? So for me, I think it was really hard 
um, the idea, I get the idea of sort of, I think it's just sort of an example of like not washing hands or being different to just live it, to be sort of living through God's living with Jesus, I guess. But it was hard because of the washing of the hands right now with COVID, Oh yeah, you know, because it's such, uh, it's really ingrained in us. <laughs> so I too would have been questioning sort of like, why didn't you guys wash your hands? You know, but I understand the structure, I guess, around, uh, the idea of sort of lip service so that if you do these things, then you'll be, you know, accepted by God. I didn't quite understand the Corbin, but that well, was. Um, if you were obliged to do something uh, for your parents by saying, oh, I would do this for my parents, but I've dedicated this to God. Then that got, it was a workaround. Um, so, so are you giving the money to the Pharisees then? Was it like, uh, well, and so it's like if your if your mom and dad needed because you were your mom and dad's social security system, um, you know if you had money that could help them, but you're saying, oh, you know, I've already promises for the organ fund, <laughs> you know, okay. and I and I went by what God said was most important, you know, a Ten Commandment kind of big deal, most important. Um, Jesus was like, that's just dirty pool, you know, <laughs> don't do that. Um, that's so uncool, yeah. Who cares how nice the organ is? Uh, right. Okay. okay. It was sort of basically choosing um, a self-righteous, self-aggrandizing religious act over caring for their parents. That's what was going on there. Yeah. Um, and selling that idea as righteousness. Um, so it was sort of a, a a public religious observance while in private turning betraying your parents and your duty to them. Um, I was struck by um, Jesus didn't mess around when they raised this issue about washing hands. He just went right. Yeah. For the jugular. Um, you get the feeling that the gloves had come off. Um, it was, um, it seems harsh and, you know, it's hard to find the love in it. Um, but I think um, Jesus always spoke the truth with love. And my hunch is, his real intent was to try to shake these people up and open their eyes to see um, just how misguided they were. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In our book study this week, there was a whole mm -hmm. chapter on tough love and confronting people with truth, even when it is painful. Um, and I hear a lot of that in this, um, mm -hmm. that he just wanted them, you know, <laughs> you think you're, you're being righteous you know, and dudes, you, you just, you miss the boat. Um, you know, this is an example, a, a concrete example of uh, them trying to pick the splinter out of his eye when their log is just jutting out. Yeah. Somebody said, you know, we're called to speak the truth in love. To speak in love without truth is not enough, or to speak truth without love is not enough. Um, 
both are critical. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to keep them both together. Mm-hmm. People tend to sort of be in one camp or the other. Right. Well, the other thing, I think the reason why, and I'll be, I'll say, um, I, I feel similar, similarly in that um, often the people I have the biggest problems with are the ones that I'm so close to, but they just, you know, uh, are so far off of where I would, you know, we would come to the uh, the fork in the road, and even though we got to the same fork, they always chose left when I always chose right, or vice versa. You know, that's the people I have the most problems with. How can you be at this decision point and choose that? Hmm. You know, I think that's a lot of uh, the divisiveness in our culture right now, <laughs> where it's a very important decision, and you know, we're we're choosing different paths, we're arguing over, you know, and choosing different realities by the decisions that we're making. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else for that first section? Mm-mm. All right. Well, I've got reading two uh, verses 14 through 23, and I'll uh, jump right in. Then Jesus called the crowd again and said, listen to me, all of you, and understand nothing outside of a person can enter and contaminate a person in God's sight. Rather, the things that come out of a person contaminate the person. After leaving the crowd, he entered a house where his disciples asked him about the riddle, about that riddle. And he said to them, don't you understand either? Don't you know that nothing from the outside that enters a person has the power to contaminate? That's because it doesn't enter into the heart, but into the stomach, and it goes out into the sewer. By saying this, Jesus declared that no food could contaminate a person in God's sight. It's what comes out of a person that contaminates someone in God's sight. He said it's from the inside, from the human heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual sins, thefts, murders, adultery, greed, evil actions, deceit, unrestrained immorality, envy, insults, arrogance, and foolishness. All these things come from the inside and contaminate a person in God's sight. In my, faith, uh, in my faith growing up, I, I remember um, I, w- I was raised in a conservative uh, denomination, and um, there was a whole list of things that thou shalt not do. And a true Christian would never, and fill in the blank. Um, I remember one time when uh, I was working with some folks that had come over from Slovakia, and when we had a team of Slovakians had, were, had, come, had come to America. And they were just aghast because in Slovakia, um, a Christian would never smoke a cigarette. And they went to a church, and outside the church, basically um, the equivalent of our vestry, were all standing outside smoking cigarettes before church got started. And there were ashtrays on the front porch of the church for all the cigarette butts. And they just could not believe it. Um, and then on the same trip, when we took Americans over to Slovakia, um, you know, the final dinner, they brought out several bottles of nice wine to celebrate and thank us for our visit. And as uh, Virginians in this very conservative denomination, uh, you know, a Christian would never drink. And there was this, there was this whole, I mean, like, how do you do communion? 
you know, it's just uh, the things that we call forbidden. Um, and Jesus says, uh, you know, it, there's nothing you can put in you that will make you unclean. Um, it's, it's what comes out of you. Um, and uh, growing up in a thou shalt not kind of approach um, was hard for me to always read the scripture because I'm like, <laughs> I don't think we live that way. Yeah. What'd you guys see? So I was hearing an echo of what um, Harrison had said, but it was flipped, you know? And so where Harrison's talking about speaking with love, this is talking about sort of what contamination is, which is the opposite of love. And so that idea of sort of not speaking in love and speaking in these, the opposites of these identified things, which are highly, you know, when you think about things where the, op again, it's the opposite of what Jesus has asked of us. So, and I think it's interesting that they thought of it in terms of um, the idea of contamination and not like sinful or, but more sort of the whole person, I feel like in terms of um, looking at corruption and not lip service. I think it's interesting how we, um, it's part of our human nature, it seems, because it it over it creeps into most religions. I think are just these rules. Um, they may start with a wonderful revelation of God, and um, but we tend to try to codify it in ways that make it rule based. Um, and I think we are all probably guilty of that to some degree. Um, and certainly there are rules, you know, um, um, but we, um, I mean, the Pharisees were basically making their faith about rules um, that they could control. Um, and Jesus just didn't fit. <laughs> I love the Episcopal Church. I love the liturgy. I love the prayer book. And one of the things that I love most about the Episcopal Church is it seems that we hold these things lightly. Um, we, they are sort of our order of worship, but we don't make them of ultimate importance. Um, and I think that's healthy. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, this is our way of worshiping God, but we acknowledge that there are many others, you know. Um, um, it's not like this is the way that we worship God. We're not saying that. Um, that's, that's the thing that it seems that Jesus clashed with the Pharisees about. Mm -hmm. I have a pet theory on that, Harrison. I think there's a pendulum that swings back and forth 
And I think we're very rigid in our form, which gives us a lot of openness in our approach. Huh. And uh, you know, I think of the, especially the congregational churches that are very free in their form, but, but then are very rigid in their approach. And I've been there. And yeah. And you have to, you know, you pick your rigidity. <laughs> and I'm with you. I, I left a very free form where I could pretty much do anything as the pastor on a Sunday morning <laughs> to a very rigid structure where there's a lot of rules. But at the same time, even then, we're very gracious and very forgiving. Um, I remember one time I showed up at uh, Shrinemont and I was asked to um, be the deacon for the bishop. This is Bishop Shannon. And uh, I didn't know there was going to be a baptism. So I had brought um, the stole that was appropriate for the season. I think it was ordinary time. And I ended up with a baptism. You have white. That's that's what you do. And I just apologized. And I said, Bishop Shannon, I'm so sorry. I didn't know there was a baptism this morning. Um, and I brought the wrong color stole. And his response was, oh, rock. That's a Victorian construct anyways. God doesn't care. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> wow. <laughs> or something along those lines. And I was like, well, that wasn't the answer I was expecting. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Um, but I think, you know, I think a lot of it, um, we get so caught up on the things we can control that we, um, choose the wrong things to be controlling about what comes out of our hearts <laughs> is what I hear Jesus saying. That's what you need to get a wrestle on. It doesn't matter <laughs> whether, you know, you had a little pork in your, um, hash browns or whatever, um, you know, pick your rigidity personally, you know, bacon wrapped scallops is as unkosher as can be, but boy, they taste really, really good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we have to find that balance. Um, that's what I hear Jesus saying anyways. When I think about the idea that like, of, for me, I think the liturgy always, for me, helps me connect to everyone else in the community on a Sunday. So I know everyone else I know has this sameness. For me, it feels just sort of shared, not necessarily like, rigid like uh i run into sometimes you know in uh other church in other denominations that denominations or fundamental church conversations with folks you know but it's, it's interesting to also be aware and really want to practice discipline like during lent and really be conscientious about struggling with following through with discipline but sometimes i feel like i really can very much give myself sort of a, oh, you could just sort of have that now. It's okay. Or Sunday's Easter. You could just have this on Easter or, you know, just sort of have a workaround, which I don't think is the point of sort of suffering on during Lent, right. you know, or being disciplined, you know, holding yourself accountable in a very specific manner. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> The analogy I used back at um, Ash Wednesday a couple weeks ago um, was, you know, to think on uh, our Lenten disciplines as concentrating ourselves, as boiling down, getting rid of the excess. And you don't add more water to get rid of the excess. <laughs> you know, uh, you, you keep the temperature going, you know, and you let it boil off and uh, trying to, get, to boil away those things in, in my life that are um, keeping me from God. This, that whole list he gave of the things in my heart that are vile. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. 
and contaminate me. Boy, that idea of contamination really hits home with COVID going on. Mm-hmm. You know, when it, at, what, at what point can our body stop fighting it and, you know, it takes over? Um, and that's, you know, we, we've all probably come into contact with COVID several times, but it hasn't been enough for our, it to take hold in our bodies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Anything else on that little bit? That's a, there was a, that was a good conversation. <laughs> All right. Gay, you want to take the third reading? Yes. Okay. Jesus left that place and went into the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know that he had entered a house, but he couldn't hide. In fact, A woman whose young daughter was possessed by an unclear spirit heard about him right away, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, Syrophician by birth. She begged Jesus to throw the demon out of her daughter. He responded, the children have to be fed first. It isn't right to take children's bread and toss it to the dogs. But she answered, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Good answer, he said. Go on home. The demon has already left your daughter. When she returned to her house, she found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. After leaving the region of Tyre, Jesus went into Sidon towards Galilee uh, Galilee Sea through the region of the 10 cities. Some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly speak, and they begged him to place his hands onto the man for healing. Jesus took him away from the crowd by himself and put his fingers in the man's ears, and then he spit and touched the man's tongue. Looking into heaven, Jesus sighed deeply and said, Ephephatha which means open up. At once, his ears opened, his twisted tongue was released, and he began to speak clearly. Jesus gave the people strict orders not to tell anyone. But the more he tried to silence them, the more eagerly they shared the news. People were overcome with wonder, saying, he does everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and give speech to those who cannot speak. Mm. And this goes back to that question of uh, the disciples in the boat. Who is this then? You know, and that's the question that Mark repeatedly asked. You know, who is this Jesus? And he wants us to answer that for ourselves as he goes through. Um, So we have the Syrophoenician mob and the deaf man in the uh, heathen territories. Gentile, I should say, rather than heathen, sorry. I was struck by the phrase, Jesus sighed deeply. Um, I don't know what other translations have translated that as, but that really grabbed me um, and kind of moved me. Um, I just think about um, 
what it must have been like to be deaf and unable to speak and what an enormous gift, how isolating that would be. Um, probably before sign language, before people were literate, he really was um, just completely shut off. Um, mm -hmm. And what a gift. And um, I don't know, I just, just imagine Jesus um, just confronted with human need, human sickness, um, human fallenness, um, how hard that must have been to know what could be um, and be faced with what is. And it just is such a moving encounter. Um, no great theological insights, just sort of the depth of Jesus' human compassion sort of came through that for me. And it's, it's an interesting contrast between the story of the Syrophoenician mother, where he sort of stiff arms her. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the same person, and I, I don't really know what to make of his response, but I, I think he knew he was going to heal this child anyway. I don't know why he said what he did, but... Um, anyway, both... Both stories are interesting, juxtaposed so closely. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure um, the idea behind that you need to feed the child first um, and then her response around, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the, the uh, children's crumbs. I'm not sure quite what that um, what that really means. But for me, when I read it, it really um, reminded, it was so humbling for some reason, because it reminds me of the, um, I think it's a post-communion prayer. And when we talk about, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, a merciful Lord. And right one, yeah. Yeah. And so for me, this echoed that, uh, or the Book of Common Prayer oh, right, right. this, <laughs> right. since it's his verse. But the idea of sort of, um, in that idea, I see myself as sort of, I'm, I'm like the dogs, I'm not worthy. And I wonder if she is sending the same message or if she's, um, I'm not sure what that is. Well, and uh, that story, it's relating that the, uh, the, the original intent of his mission were the Jews. It's very clear that she's Greek. She comes mm -hmm. from this... Um, Gentile birth of Syrophoenician, um, and the Phoenicians were the folks that gave us our, you know, written language. Our alphabet is based off Phoenician um, letters, um, and they, uh, you know, were the first folks that uh, developed uh, uh, bronze. They found out that tin was up in England, and they would take their boats and they would sail all the way up to England, get the tin, and bring it back to the Mediterranean. And made this magical thing called bronze. Hence the Bronze Age. The Phoenicians were the ones that enabled us to have that. Mark, um, you are just full of amazing information. Life's <laughs> <laughs> too short, man. Gotta <laughs> you can. 
Um, but the, the, I mean, fascinating people. Um, if you are curious, um, the uh, last vestiges of this culture are the Palestinians. Um, hmm. You know, uh, you know, if you get down to Gaza and the Gaza Strip, and that's the and that was their sea. That was the coastal traders, um, and that's the last extant remnant of this um, people. Um, really, I still have a heart for them. Yeah. Um, later on, I'll tell you about the time I got to preach at a church in in Gaza, um, and uh, boy, that was uh, quite the day. Um, anyways, but uh, it's uh, so this woman is coming in and throwing herself at Jesus' feet, and he's like, "Lady, I'm here to, you know, <laughs> I'm here to feed the kids. You know, the dog's going to, you know, get the food." Um, which once again comes out said is racist. Let's just call it what it is and harsh. Um, I've had a few sermons on that, um, uh, and uh, one here, and uh, it's it's hard not to hear it that way. And I'm not sure whether Jesus was speaking so that the people around him, he was saying what they expected him to say, you know. But then he already says, "Your daughter is already healed. <laughs> Go home." Um, that's interesting. Um, uh, a few weeks ago, I said, you know. Miracles follow the faith in the story, and she expressed her faith. Um, or it could be what Gay said, you know, that uh, it's uh, maybe she uh, needed to express that faith through her humbleness. You know, I'm not even worthy <laughs> to collect the scraps uh, off the day, but even even the dogs get the scraps. Um, yeah, um, I, I one of the most heartbreaking stories I ever heard. I was talking to the child of a priest, and they were talking about why they didn't go to church anymore. And they named that part of the liturgy gay of, uh, you know, the, 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 we're not worthy to get the crumbs off the table. And I said, oh, is that, you stop going to church over that? He goes, yeah, I, don't, I just didn't want to feel that way. And I said, well, he's quoting a story there. You know, the, the, the liturgy is echoing this one story where we obviously, where it feels like we see Jesus at his worst, but even there he extends grace. You know, uh, and he's like, oh, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> before you're through the baby out with the bad water, maybe do a little homework. Um, it was heartbreaking for me because he had left the church, you know, decades before um, over that one line in the liturgy. It's so uh, interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because how often does Jesus perform miracles without the person present? You know, when Lazarus is raised from the dead, Lazarus is a separate from people. He says, go. And here's one you go. But the other miracles that are performed, Jesus is touching. It's in front of, it's a, it's, it's a present. The people are present. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of, of exceptions. This being one, the centurion servant being another, where the people who had the authority over the person, here the mother had the authority over the child. There the centurion had the authority over his slave. Um where the person of authority comes to Jesus and recognizes Jesus' authority. And because of the faith of the authority, they are healed. Um, and, but even there, you're right, because Jesus says, not even in Israel have I found such faith when he talks to the centurion. Um, because usually it is um, through touch um, or being touched. Do you remember the woman who grabbed the hem of his garment? Uh -huh. And um, her faith was what enabled that miracle to have, be, take place. Yeah. 
So was the man, what was, we don't know what the man was, do we? If he was, he's from Galilee, but we don't know if he's Jewish or if he's. Well, we're assuming he's probably Greek like she was. Maybe, maybe not. Um, because where it is, it's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the Tyre and Sidon. Then the 10 cities, the word for the 10 cities is the Decapolis. So obviously they were Greek. Is it literally okay. Decapolis, 10 cities? You know, here they translate it in this translation, but often you'll see it listed in a, a more a literal translation as the Decapolis um, for that very reason. Um, and then we have this wonderful Aramaic that is a, a mouthful with two PHs back to back, Ephapa. That's yeah. all I'm going to say. You did a good job with that one, Gay. Yeah. Oh, I did not think so. Thank you. I was feeling your pain. Uh, well, two PHs and a TH, all in one word. Um, yeah. Not a lot of uh, hard consonants there. Just one final thing on Jesus sighing deeply. I, it comes to mind that before Jesus called Lazarus forth from the grave, he sighed deeply, I think, or something like that. Um, something for next year's discussion well he loves us deeply I think um, one of the wonderful things about watching as this um, outsider becomes a, or, you know and even then uh, we, we aren't sure about how cognizant Jesus was of who he was when you know, we have him in the temple at 12 saying, you know, he's in his father's house. But was that idea fully constructed? We don't, we just don't know. Um, but here he you know, is coming in as the outsider um, into humanity and loving us. He weeps over Lazarus. He sighs mm -hmm. over people's lack of faith. Um, you know, he castigates the disciples again and again. You know, where is your faith? <laughs> Come on, boys. <laughs> You've seen all this. So you have no excuses. Um, yeah. But the other thing he does is that he heals a man who cannot speak and tells them, and he sighs before he does it, and then he heals him and asks him to not speak and for the people around not to speak, and they don't respect that. Yeah. So I wonder if it's the realization, too, that this is going to bring the move him towards where he'll be headed. Well, I think you're right. In fact, well, that's one of the big um, uh, discussion points in the Gospel of Mark. That's called the Messianic Secret, or mm -hmm. the Messianic Secret in Mark. Because repeatedly, he tells people, don't talk about this. And the first thing they do is they run around and tell everybody. Mm -hmm. And they're forcing his hand. He's, um, he knows that it's, this is a pressure cooker, and he needs to take this slow, or the little get blown off. Um, yeah. And there's the messianic secret one all over again. That's a good parallel between those two uh, two stories. Anything else? Cool. Well, we're doing great. Well, let's. Uh, that was uh, chapter seven. Good job, folks. Thank yeah. you. Just one question. I wonder if Jesus is still sighing deeply. Just something to ponder. Mm. Is he, you know, I don't know. I don't need to know, but it's 
It's strangely moving. I think he still weeps too. Yeah. <laughs> Um, if, every time I watch the news, I know I saw <laughs> We're going through some weird times. Yes. All right. Thank you. Thank you both. Are we ready for chapter eight? Or? I was going to say, do we need a stretch break or potty break? No, I'm fine. Here we go. All right. Okay. All right. Well, let's forward ahead. Uh, we'll give a brief introduction. And I'm just going to do this so I can see it in my edits. <laughs> as I fast forward through it to edit tomorrow. All right, uh, chapter eight, here we go. We're back on uh, doing this with Gay Gibson, Harrison Higgins um, for our Lenten study at St. James the Last. And here we are with chapter eight. Harrison, you've got the first reading in chapter eight. You want to take that? Yes. In those days, there was another large crowd with nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for the crowd because they have been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they won't have enough strength to travel, for some have come a long distance. His disciples responded, how can anyone get enough food in this wilderness to satisfy these people? Jesus asked, how, many, how much bread do you have? They said, seven loaves. He told the crowd, to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, gave thanks, broke them apart, and gave them to his disciples to distribute. And they gave the bread to the crowd. They also had a few fish. He said a blessing over them and then gave them to the disciples to hand out also. They ate until they were full. They collected seven baskets full of leftovers. This was a crowd of about 4,000 people. Jesus sent them away and then got into a boat with his disciples and went over to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees showed up and began to argue with Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. With an impatient sigh, Jesus said, why does this generation look for a sign? I assure you that no sign will be given it. Leaving them, he got back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake. So what'd you hear? I heard another sigh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, from the one at the end of chapter seven, that's right. I think it's fascinating that they asked to see a sign from heaven when Jesus had just had a major miracle. Like, I just met 4,000 people. Yeah. Like, it's sort of like, what are you looking for? You know? Good point, Gay. And I think of the folks that, you know, uh, um, are the churchy types that Jesus gets upset with. And they're the folks that are looking to control it. You know, he to control others by their rules, to control Jesus by demanding a sign on demand. And he's, you know, and here very clearly, it doesn't it doesn't work that way. You know, the miracles respond to faith. And here, you know, and you obviously have not. A miracle's not gonna happen. You know, stop asking. Um, yep. 
So we have this parallel to the feeding of the 5,000. Um, and we'll get into the details in the next reading, so I don't want to steal its thunder, but... Um, <laughs> This goes back to my early charismatic days. I mean, I hope I'm still, well, never mind about that. Um, the, the wild and crazy sort of youth, of my youth in the faith. And I was in a meeting, a prayer meeting with a group of college age people two of whom had just come back from a youth rally in Texas. And it was in some stadium and it was stinking hot. And they took a thermos and a, they just went to the grocery store and bought a stack of, you know, little Dixie cups. And they were just standing in the broiling, sitting in the broiling sun all day. And they started drinking out of the thermos and people around them asked if they could have a drink. And so they started handing out these cups and filling them with water and and then refilling them as the day wore on. And they started getting a little suspicious about when this thermos would run dry, but they just kept on sharing this water. And um, they got back and sort of counted the number of cups that they had given out and filled and then they measured how many cups it took to fill the thermos, and the two didn't add up. Mm -hmm. That's the story they told. Do with it what you want. But I kind of believe this feeding of the 5,000 literally. I just do. Um, I wish it still happened. I don't know why it happened sometimes in one place and not in another. I can't explain any of that. Um, but I just don't personally explain away the miracles. Um, there you go. That's my, that's my fundamentalist charismaniac Christian self coming out. <laughs> Those roots go deep. I also like the interpretation that I've heard about the miracle being that Jesus took bread and shared it, and people pulled out their secret stashes of bread and began to share it. And both can be true. And I don't, I don't, you know, both mean something to me. So. There you go. Another one of these passages that I don't really understand. Well, especially in the Episcopal Church, we've been so um, gifted with uh, uh, funding for so long. You know, we're, we're about 15, 20 years behind where most denominations are as far as um, funding and things. Um, I remember I was in a conversation with several other priests and they were complaining about not having money. And they were um, two priests who were basically talking back and forth um, were two, from two of the larger churches in Richmond. I won't name any names, but they were talking about a lack of funding. And I finally didn't, hadn't had enough. And I said, look, we have all we need. 
you know, we have a God of abundance and we follow a God of abundance. And I, you know, if we need it, God will provide, <laughs> you know, I, I, I fully believe that. I said, look at every Bible story out there and God is gracious and God's abundance comes through. Um, you know, maybe it's a lack of faith on our part. You know, we stop believing in the miracle. Um, and that's, and that was hard for them to hear. Luckily, a senior priest pulled me aside and he goes, we need more. <laughs> we need more priests like you. And I'm like, thank you. Good for you, Ron. You know, especially in those two churches, you know, I'm, I was in here thinking I could really de deal with having your budget. It would be really nice to have. Um, and here they were complaining about how, how bad it was. You know, I'm just like, OK, I'm thank I thank God I am where I am um, because uh, uh, repeatedly when uh, we've had a need here, you know, people have stepped up and we haven't had to bat an eye. And, you know, thanks be to God. Um, and. Uh, trying to, um, once again, I think it's it's that openness versus that control. Those mm -hmm. Pharisees with all their rules <laughs> trying to step in and control. And, you know, uh, we let, we follow a wild desert God who brings manna and quail, <laughs> you know, and that God of abundance, you know, we stop praying for rain. Um, you know, we stop praying for heat when, you know, the ice storm hit the other day. Um, I, I, I'm not sure where along the way we lost that tie to um, a God who provides even the most basic of our needs. Um, makes me a little bit sad. It makes me sigh to use your word for the night. <laughs> I think it's funny to think about sort of questioning if this was true or not. I don't see why it couldn't be. I mean, I think it does happen all the time. And what really stands out to me is that Jesus initiates this because he's worried about uh, people going home and not being well and not being sustained, you know, and the, another version that was talking about, uh, he was concerned people would faint, you know, lose consciousness. And that idea of sort of having enough to nurture, I think is who Jesus is. And I think that this is just a really sort of simple it's not even, to me, it's not particularly discreet, but people obviously didn't realize what was going on around them because they didn't recognize it as a sign of heaven. But, you know, you think about being fed or nurtured. I mean, I think that is all people were looking for a lot from Jesus and still from the church, you know. So this definitely shows that piece of Jesus's love and wanting people to be well. Yes. Anything else from that first part? I just had this sort of inkling of seeing Jesus um, as sort of his feminine side as a mother feeding his children, her, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it's just sort of what parents do. Um, it, it's just what we do. It's sort of in our bones. You know, um, you feed your children before you feed yourself. Um, mm -hmm. it, um, it's just God taking care of his kids. Like a mother takes care of, you know, her infant child. Um,
and we should go and do likewise. Yeah. Well, I know Shrinemont has a special place in all three of our hearts. Um, and uh, Thank you. Uh, probably gay trumps both of us, Harrison. <laughs> I know. I know. But uh, uh, the uh, that's what I loved about doing camp ministry is it's one of the only places I know where I got to take care of the whole person um, as the camp director. You know, I had to make, I was able to make sure everybody was fed and clothed and entertained. I took care of their social needs, their spiritual needs. And as a minister, being able to address the whole person um, was a gift because um, very rarely do, uh, do I have that opportunity to minister, you know, back in the real world. That's what I loved about Shrine Mod. Even though Shrine Mod is a very cushy place to do it, but they fed you way too much, but... <laughs> And too well. But, uh, yeah. Well, good. Let's jump into the, the next passage, because it ties it together. Starting with verse 14 of chapter 8. Jesus' disciples had forgotten to bring any bread, so they only had one loaf with them in the boat. How ironic. Right. <laughs> Twice that day. He gave them strict orders. Watch out. And be on your guard for the yeast of the Pharisees, as well as the yeast of Herod. The disciples discussing this amongst themselves, he said this because we have no bread. And Jesus knew what they were discussing and said, why are you talking about the fact that you don't have any bread? Don't you grasp what has happened? Don't you understand? Are your hearts so resistant to what God is doing? Don't you have eyes? Why can't you see? Don't you have ears? Why can't you hear? Don't you remember? When I broke five loaves of bread for those 5,000 people, how many baskets full of leftovers did you gather? They answered, and I think I hear in a very sheepish tone, 12. <laughs> and when I broke the seven loaves of bread for those 4,000 people, how many baskets full of leftovers did you gather? They answered, seven. And Jesus said to them, and still you don't understand. Jesus and his disciples came to Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus and begged him to touch and heal him. Taking the blind man's hand, Jesus led him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on the man, he asked him, do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees and they're walking around. And then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again. And he looked with eyes wide open. His sight was restored and he said he could see everything clearly. Then Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Um, so often we want to um, not see how these stories are intentionally structured, but we have the story of the disciples not seeing. And then this man who doesn't see. But when he doesn't see, he's very clear with Jesus. They look like trees. Now, the thing is, he must have had sight at one point or he wouldn't know what trees look like to know they look like trees. So he wasn't born blind, or at least I don't think he could have been. Um, but then he but he tells Jesus, I don't see right. Even when I see, I don't see right. And Jesus, you know, continues to work with him. Um, and I think, you know, we have this um, being held up for us. The disciples who should have known better don't see right and they don't even try to see right. You know, they remain in their ignorance. And we have this guy who doesn't see, 
um, and doesn't see the way he's supposed to be able to see, uh, and he uh, stays with Jesus, and Jesus fully heals him so that he can see clearly. Um, That's some fascinating stuff there. What else? So what is, I watch out and be on your guard for the yeast of the Pharisees as well as the yeast of Herod. So what is that? I've, I've never heard this before or heard it as clearly as I'm hearing it tonight. I don't understand quite what that means because right. you need yeast for bread, which is what they're hungry for. And yeast makes bread rise. You can but, make bread without yeast. Um. But we uh, earlier tonight, we talked about how the Pharisees were puffed up and full of themselves. And I think that's what he's, um, that's how I read what he's getting at. You know, they were puffed up, not with the yeast they shouldn't be puffed up with. They were self-righteous instead of being righteous. Um, you know, and just because I pulled a miracle off for the 4,000, doesn't mean that I'm going to pull off another miracle in this boat. Just, you know, I'm not going to rescue your stupidity a second time. Um, not that he rescued him the first time. He actually cared for the people. This is the way I read it. But, um, you know, I, I see, you know, don't don't put me to the test, you know, asking for a sign. That, that's how I read it. Okay. At and first I, I thought you were, I thought you were saying that the yeast was like someone's ego or being arrogant. Well, the arrogance of the Pharisees, the arrogance to know what's right. Well, I was saying that too, but also okay. don't demand a sign. You know, oh, Jesus, we forgot bread again. Here's a loaf. Make some more. Yeah. <laughs> or basically demanding a sign from Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, don't have the yeast of the Pharisees. I'm not going to do this. I don't perform tricks. I'm not, a, you know, I'm, this is not mm-hmm. magic. This is faith. And, you know, I was struck. I'm struck by the image that he used the word yeast, um, because yeast is this essentially an invisible microbe that um, even just a few getting into a bunch of wet flour will eventually fill that whole bowl of flour and make it rise. It and it does it silently. Um, you're not aware of it happening. And it's sort of how, um, I don't know, hateful lies infiltrate our consciousness and grab hold of us and spread. It's a, it's a very good image of, of, of that, of the way we're prone to um, these poisonous ideas. And um, um, and I think we're just riddled with it, you know, with conspiracy theories and things like that today. I mean, mm-hmm. it is like yeast spreading through our complex global intercommunication system now. Um, and you see the result of it. Um, I read an article this morning in the paper about this zealous Christian man that got hooked into a Facebook group that sort of took over his 
mind, literally. I mean, the church was trying to do an intervention with him, warning him about it, asking him to get just get off of Facebook. He couldn't do it. He's now been arrested uh, for breaking into the Capitol on January 6th. He has two small children, toddlers. This is a good guy that just got infected by something. Yeah, it's like a, the contamination again. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And speaking of that, the footnote, um, Gay, on 815, the mm-hmm. use metaphor illustrates the corrupting power of religious and political authorities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so Harrison, that very much is in line with what you were just saying. Yeah. Right. And the word beware, I think, is needs emphasis. Um, you don't have to just know that this is a possibility. You have to be vigilant that these ideas don't creep into us. Um, mm-hmm. And I think they can be you know, very subtle, you know, um, um, just attitudes, um, people that we disagree with, we can sort of categorize in a certain way and not see them anymore. This, mm-hmm. our, some fiction about them as a group takes over in our lives and we stop seeing them as people. Um, mm-hmm. um, it seems like it's the same dynamic, um, you know, the Pharisees, if you weren't practicing your faith this way, you were lost. You were damned. Mm-hmm. You were bad and evil. Um, um, if you weren't doing it just the way we say, there was something fundamentally wrong with you. Um, mm-hmm. That's a real danger, um, mm-hmm. I think, for all of us. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just reading a book and it was talking about the more that we're in camps and the more we try and isolate and just be with people that agree with us, the higher levels of depression we have because we're more isolated. Hmm. And so instead of of sort of having the depth of conversation, when we become rigid, like we were talking about with the Pharisees before, rigidness can lead to isolation and it can increase depression. You know, and it's really a challenge with COVID, making sure there's that, this idea of sort of trying to generate community. But politically, when people have those thoughts, it doesn't matter whose camp you're in. If you can't address someone else who has a differing thought from you, then people have a tendency to have a higher level of depression in their isolation. So it's really interesting mm-hmm. to think about that. Well, only because of the time I'm going to push us to jump to the third reading. Yeah. Okay. These are great conversations. Okay, all yours. Okay. All right. So I'm going to start at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went into the villages near Sirius Philippi. On the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still other other ones of the prophets. He asked them, and what about you? Who do you say that I am? 
Peter answered, you are Christ. Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then Jesus began to teach his disciples. The human one must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the legal experts and be killed. And then after three days, rise from the dead. He said this plainly, but Peter took hold of Jesus and scolding him began to correct him. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and then sternly corrected Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. After calling the crowds uh, together with his disciples, Jesus said to them, All who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them, but all who lose their lives because of me and because of the good news will save them. Why would people gain the whole world but lose their lives? What will people give in exchange for their lives? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this unfaithful and sinful generation, the one human will be ashamed of that person when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus continued, I assure you that some who stand here won't die before they see God's kingdom arrive in power. Hmm. Lots of stuff in there. No kidding. And just a reminder for folks that may have missed the earlier um, discussions, uh, the human one is the son of man. We are the quintessential human or the epitome of what God wants in a human. Um, like we would say the spitting, you know, he's the spitting image of his father. Um, something like that. But he is the quintessential human or the human one is the way this translation. Often you'll hear that the son of man, which was, a, an, you know, an idiom that doesn't mean anything to us, but would have made a lot of sense back then. So we have the confession of Peter. One of four stories that's in all four Gospels. Uh, mm -hmm. What'd you hear? I think this is the pivot point in Jesus' ministry. Um, it's where he starts to turn toward Jerusalem and his confrontation <laughs> there. Um, it's where he starts to teach about if you want to save your life, you're going to have to lose it. It takes, he enters into a whole new realm um, in his teaching with his disciples. And it seems to me that he focuses more on his disciples, his immediate followers, and their training. They're not the big events that we've been reading about up to this point. Um, it's such a pivotal, powerful moment. And he couldn't be more right. If you look at the structure of the whole gospel, it builds to this one point and everything else is going towards Jerusalem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
this is your this is your you're exactly right. This is the the turning point, the pivot point in the Gospel of Mark. Yep. You know, we were talking earlier about not sure sort of where Jesus was or how much he was aware in that moment, you know, but clearly here, he articulates it, that it's so, that he's thought it through so clearly. And he clearly knows that every time he's meeting with the Pharisees or every time he's having these interactions, it is that one step closer, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, it makes me think of your sign again. Um, Harrison, because I think about like, have you ever, before you start something, right before you get to the end point, you're on the edge of the diving board, before you jump in the cold water, you go into that next thing. It's like you take that deep breath, you know? So earlier there's deep breaths before he says this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, but then, yeah. But then Peter like tries to scold him and negate it. (laughs) <laughs> which would be very frustrating. <laughs> well, and uh, yes. And I mean, it's not even, the, it's in the same paragraph where he says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, and you're Satan. Right. <laughs> you know, before the paragraph is over. Um, but at the same time, culturally, they had a very clear understanding and expectation of what the Messiah was going to be and what the Messiah was going to do. And he was going to kick those stinking Romans out, you know, who they had invited in to kick the stinking Greeks out, which is basically the story of the Apocrypha, you know. Uh, you know, after Alexander the Great took over everything, the Greeks come in. How do we get rid of the Greeks uh, so that we can praise and worship God the way we want to? Um, well, let's get the Romans in here and kick the Greeks out. That works really well for a while. You know, the enemy you know is always better than the enemy you don't. And the Romans were even worse than the Greeks. Um, And that's where we are sitting now at this point in the story. And, uh, and, you know, this expectation of what the Messiah's responsibilities would be. um, And they see him as a political leader. And Jesus was everything but that. Um, And I'm not going to do it on your terms you know, when he makes this messianic prophecy of uh, that he must suffer and die, and whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> you can't talk about dying here. That's not, that's not your job. Your job is to get rid of the Romans. Um, and, uh, you know, he's just very clear. No, we're not going to even go down that road. You're going to nip this in the bud. I just, you know, praised you. And, but right now, uh-uh. You're, he doesn't give that any distance whatsoever. Yeah. It's big stuff. <laughs> So when he uses the image of you'll lift up your cross and follow me, is that what would make him, what would make people not scratch their heads or wonder? Because we know the end of the story. We know he's crucified on the cross. We can easily connect the dots back to that. Those, but people didn't know that yet. What is the symbol? Like what is that a turn of phrase in that time or what would make that, fit for people to understand well the romans love to crucify folks so just because cru- crucifixion was rampant yeah and take up your cross because that was that was your punishment you you carried your own mm-hmm. of death to the site um just like jesus did the via Dolorosa um 
the way of the cross. Um, we have our stations up, you know, around the church. That, uh, follow that, especially during Holy Week. Right now we have uh, Lenten stations, but, um, you know, come Holy Week, we'll have the Holy Week stations up. But it's, uh, that's it. once again, I think you're right. I think they took it as metaphor. And if, if you want to have a fun reading of the Gospels, look and see all the times the disciples took things metaphorically when Jesus was being literal. And all the things they took literal, like yeast, <laughs> when they meant it metaphorically. Um, yeah, and here's he's very clear. Um, this is, you're going to have to die to yourself. And that dying to self might actually be dying. Um, yeah. Um, one of the um, great um, proofs that the disciples were not making this stuff up, um, and they really did believe Jesus to be who he was, is the horrible way that all of them died. You know, if the church tradition is uh. correct on how every single one of the disciples died, um, Judas hangs himself, and not counting him. The original 11 were all martyred in some horrific way. Um, you know, if you're convicted, and you can get off if you just say the word, and none of them chose that route. Makes me think they really did believe this. You know, for them to really believe it to the point of death um, meant that they actually had seen something that was worth anything else. Um, yeah. So their faith really shone through in their deaths. Mm -hmm. It's. I, oh. There's such big ideas in these in this story. It seems to me. Um, it, I think of the Jewish faith and their observance as having more to do with obedience. Um, and Jesus was introducing a new way of connecting with God through faith. He was saying that's primary. That's that's a, a notch deeper than performance. For the for a practicing Jew, if I did these rituals, was you know born in this place, um, observed these rites, I was good with God. But Jesus is saying it's those are outward signs mm -hmm. that that there's something there's a deeper level of that what my faith is about, what the kingdom of God is really about. It's not an outward kingdom, it's an inward kingdom. And to get to that inward kingdom, you have to let go of the outward one. Um, I see that as sort of losing your life. Um, you do not get to me by performing for me. You mm -hmm. have to trust me and let go in some way and follow where I lead. And it's not going to be easy or comfortable necessarily. It will feel like a death at times. But the part that's dying needs to die because the part that's going to wake up is the eternal being that's in you. Um, and you access that being through faith. Um, um, I don't know. Um, I'm just in awe of how Jesus saw these truths in um, in the 
context in which he lived um, with his religious upbringing. Um, think about reading the Old Testament and pulling out of the, it the understanding that Jesus brought to it. It really is amazing. Um, and you, you mentioned, Rock, earlier, just um, how did Jesus see himself? How did he understand who he was? Where did he real, when did he realize, I've got to go to Jerusalem and give my life? Well, he quotes scripture. I mean, he was a biblical scholar. Um, I've wondered what the scriptures are that he was reading. I mean, the only one I can think of is Isaiah 50, whatever it is. But right. Well, several in Isaiah, um, but there are portions of the Psalms when Jesus quotes, um, the Lord Psalm said to my Lord. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, on the cross, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? This Psalm 22. Um, he, he knows the Old Testament and the prophecies backwards and forwards. Um, and um, before we paint a broad, broad brush, I think there are folks who are inside the Jewish faith. And I think of Anna and Simeon in the temple from the beginning of Luke. Hmm. I think John the Baptizer, who was very much within the tradition. He was in the prophetic role rather than the priestly. Um, who, uh, to use our phrase from the first week we, we did these, who was in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think Anna and Simeon also fall into that camp. Um, that, that they had, did have a faith relationship with God. Well, and certainly Abraham did. Um, oh, of course, yeah, and Moses. Yeah, and, um, but this, yeah, good point. And I know a lot of Christians who obey a lot of rules, and <laughs> Jesus says, I, says he will say, I never knew you, um, which is terrifying and heartbreaking. Right. Yeah. Shall we... Yeah, I think just for time, I, once again, we could spend three hours on this yeah. passage alone, uh, but we'll call it an end on chapter eight, and uh, thank you both. All right, so we are on chapter nine, Gay Gibson and uh, Harrison Higgins and I are back, and so chapter nine, we'll start with verse one, Harrison, I think this is yours. All right, Jesus continued. I assure you that some standing here won't die before they see God's kingdom arrive in power. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and brought them to the top of a very high mountain where he was alone with them. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes were amazingly bright, brighter than if they had been bleached white. Elijah and Moses appeared and were talking with Jesus. Peter reacted to all this by saying to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let me make three shrines, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't know how to respond, for the three of them were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice spoke from the cloud, This is my son, whom I dearly love. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them not to tell anyone that they, what they had seen until after the human one had been raised from the dead. And so they kept it to themselves, wondering 
what this raising from the rising from the dead meant. And they asked Jesus, why do the legal experts say that Elijah must come first? He answered, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Why was it written that the human one would suffer many things and be rejected? In fact, I tell you that Elijah has come, but they did to him whatever they wanted, just as it was written about him. I've always been mystified by the transfiguration. Rock, what did they teach you about it in seminary? <laughs> I, well, I remember until I became Episcopalian, I had never given a sermon on the transfiguration or heard one. And I'm huh. thankful that I am forced every year to preach on this <laughs> passage. Um, well, this is uh, the counterpoint to what took place with Peter's confession um, at the end of the last chapter. So we have Peter confessing that he is the one. And then we have this echo from God. Yes, you're right. He is the one. <laughs> you know, so that um, uh, that that, that re faith response from Peter enabled this miracle six days later where they got confirmation from God, God's self <laughs> coming down from heaven. He is the one. Um, and then this... Uh, and then the other part of this is, you know, Moses is the quintessential lawgiver. Elijah or Isaiah, it depends on who you talk to, is the quintessential prophet. Um, but Elijah, you know, represents the prophets. And so we, this phrase of all the law and the prophets, the portions of the um, Hebrew Bible, you know, is the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. The Torah and the Nevi'im are the law and the prophets the two big sections, and then the Kethuvim is the writings. But we always talk about, you know, this sums up the law and the prophets, um, basically the three parts of the Hebrew Bible. Um, but the, but the, all, the, the, all the authoritative stuff, um, the Kethuvim, the writings, are going to be things like Proverbs and um, Psalms, um, you know, that aren't seen as, authorita as authoritative as the law and the prophets. But you have the law and the prophets there to affirm with God, he's the one. <laughs> that guy we've been talking about this whole time, it's him. <laughs> um, yeah. My pet theory on this, and I, you know, I'm hesitant to, to float this, um, but a lot of this came from a lot of the science I, I read. You know, if time and space are all relative, and every time is now, um, and there is no before and after. You know, think of the prayer meeting that Moses goes to and Elijah shows <laughs> up. And think of the prayer meeting that Elijah goes to. Maybe that still small voice that he heard in the cave was Jesus. Hmm. Maybe his prayer meeting was, you know, maybe his transfiguration moment was when he was hiding in that cave. And that still small voice was this event. Um, you know, I, I'd like to think that um, in prayer, we cross the boundaries of time. I know I've heard missionary stories and Harrison, you probably heard very similar ones about folks who have prayed for medicine or shoes for their school where they worked or whatever. And, you know, they arrived the next day, but they had been mailed from back home three weeks earlier. Oh yeah. You know, and that the prayer on Tuesday 
gives them the deliverance they need on Wednesday. But God was working it out three weeks before to get it from the States over to wherever, China or Africa or wherever the, um, I've heard too many missionary stories of things like that happening. Um, and, you know, I, I like to think that when Jesus um, goes to prayer, you know, the veil is torn open. Um, mm -hmm. You know, now in a very, before our modern times when time was seen as linear and, you know, the dominoes fall from creation till Jesus, um, you know, they would be coming down from heaven to have that conversation with Jesus. Um, with quantum stuff, <laughs> I don't think we need to see it that way, but that's that's my own personal theory and not telling anybody to buy into that if they don't feel it, but yeah. Those are just some thoughts. Do you think that Jesus saying some standing here will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in power, that, that that's referring to the transfiguration? I always see that as um, Acts 2 and the, you know, the Holy okay. Spirit coming okay. in power. Um, because I, I think they were all alive six days later. But I think the coming of that's that's my mm -hmm. reading of it. But I have this again, this is me. I don't know if this is orthodox, but um, I've had this feeling that this was a potential that Jesus could have left from mm -hmm. the Mount of Transfiguration and said, mission accomplished. Mm -hmm. um, if his mission was to reveal God, to bring faith in him, um, a full expression of who God is and what God is like and what God wants, um, he could have said, I've done that and left. But it it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been enough. And he knew it. Mm -hmm. um, we couldn't have couldn't have no human being could ever have said to God, I didn't know. Because of what Jesus had done and said and shown up to this point in his life. Um, he revealed God to us, to humanity. Um, um, but it wasn't enough. Um, and God knew that. He had to, the cross, salvation would still have been dependent on us. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I get lost in my thoughts after I say that. <laughs> um, it strikes me that from this point on in the story, our faith goes where no other faith goes. There's nothing else like this in human religion. Up to this point, there are there is revelation about God, about God's nature, about 
what is right and what is wrong, um, what is important, what the true values are um, that we should live by. But there's no other figure in human religions that I'm aware of that do what Jesus does after this point. I see a parallel between um, the transfiguration were it to stop there and the um, temptation of the of Satan. You know, I'll make everybody fall down and worship you. Um, yeah. I think this declares that love will win. Um, and I think the rest of the story declares that love ain't cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, Kind of like that uh, haunting uh, inscription on the Korean War Memorial, freedom isn't free. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, okay, we've talked a lot. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about what Her- I was thinking about what Harrison is saying, because I was thinking, too, that part of, I think, thinking about that is that Jesus had told the whole story right before the transfiguration. So he, like, gave a playbook, like, this is what's going to happen. And it's going to be really hard. And then it's like he has this experience um, on the mountain with the transfiguration. And so I'm not sure he could walk away because he had, he's accountable. Right. He knew already. That's clear. And he had verbalized it. He had told them, this is what's going to go down, you know, and that, you know, I don't know what, and we don't know what was said, do we, in the transfiguration? As I mess with this story um, in my head, um, at the point of Jesus' transfiguration, I think he could legitimately say, I have fulfilled what Moses and Elijah had foretold about Messiah. Certainly, if he'd come down the mountain and revealed himself in that kind of glory, he could have fulfilled their image of the Messiah. But it was not his he, he saw a deeper level to it mm-hmm. um, he took it to a whole new place um, by going to Jerusalem and giving himself up it contradicted the 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 expectation of him um, nobody was expecting the Messiah to offer himself as a self-sacrifice. And it's in Mark when the um, baptism happens, it's private, right? So this, Mm -hmm. so this is the first time, right? Yeah. So this is the first time other people have heard God speak. This is my son. I remember you brought that up in Vestry when we did it for the Lectio. Yeah. yeah. So this is the first public. I mean, I get, I mean, I really appreciate that they admitted that they were terrified. <laughs> right. It would be terrifying. You know, what are we seeing? How is this even happening? You know. There's a reason why all the angels say first, be not afraid. <laughs> yeah. No well, kidding. And God's very much cuts to the trace about, 
cut to the chase about just listen to him. I mean, there's an exclamation point. You know, I can't imagine if there's an exclamation point after what something God said, how loud or how like overwhelming that would have been told. In <laughs> um, once again, we uh, wrestling with different translations, but I have a problem with this one and this. This is my son, whom I dearly love. It's a noun, not an adjective. Um, you know, it's not a describing, uh, it, it's a name. Ho agapitos, the beloved, you know. Oh. And I think, that, for me, that makes a big difference. You know. Interesting. Um, that, um, I, I, I find that ho agapitos, the, the beloved, so important um, that it's a name given. My two cents on the translation. Um, interesting contradiction here uh, about um, Jesus saying that Elijah did come, and we read that to be John the Baptizer. But when John the Baptizer is asked, are you Elijah? He's like, no. <laughs> so, you know, anyways, just to add a little more complexity to our conversations. And once again, just because of time, I hate to push this, but I'm going to get, you go ahead with the next reading. Okay. Starting with verse 14 of chapter 9. When Jesus, Peter, James, and John approached the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them and legal experts arguing with them. Suddenly, the whole crowd caught sight of Jesus. They ran to greet him, overcome with excitement. Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about? Someone from the crowd responded, teacher, I brought my son to you since he has a spirit that doesn't allow him to speak. Whenever it overpowers him, it throws him into a fit. He foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and stiffens up. So I spoke to your disciples to see if they could throw it out, but they couldn't. Jesus answered them, you faithless generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought him. They brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a fit. He fell on the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been going on? He said, since he was a child, it has thrown him into a fire or into water trying to kill him. If you can do anything, help us, show us compassion. And Jesus said to him, if you can do anything, all things are possible for the one who has faith. And once again, we'll tie that back to our faith brings the miracle conversation. And that, at that, the boy's father cried out, I have faith. Help my lack of faith. Um, or in other translations, it's often, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Noticing that the crowd had surged together, Jesus spoke harshly to the unclean spirit, mute and deaf spirit. I command you to come out of him and never enter, in, enter him again. After screaming and shaking the boy horribly, the spirit came out. The boy seemed to be dead. In fact, several people said that he had died. But Jesus took his hand, lifted it up, and he arose. After Jesus went into a house, the disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we throw the spirit out? And Jesus answered, throwing this kind of spirit out requires prayer. What would you hear? So for me, again, it goes back to that internal experience, the internal experience of faith. And what that can do, you know. So as the faith produces food and feeds, feeds thousands of people, you know, and the faith can remove demons. 
you know. I picture the scene, you know, he has one of the most holy moments imaginable and, every, you know, it comes into utter chaos, you know, and everybody's arguing and fighting <laughs> over how best to help this kid. Um, and it's hard to imagine. And Jesus' response to his disciples, you know, they don't know what has just transpired, you know, and so... We get the inside meaning of what, when he says, um, uh, you faithless generation, how long will I be with you? You know, he, he's already been, let it be clear, we're on our way to Jerusalem, where I'm going to yeah. suffer, die, and rise again. How long will I put up with you? Um, you know, and uh, his, uh, his affirmation that he's on the right path was what had just taken place up on the mountain. And then we have this this moment of just uh, frustration over them not getting it again. Mm -hmm. And another time that a parent is saying, you know, fill me or do with me what you need to, to save my child. Well, and I think verse 24 is one of the most honest statements mm -hmm. I have made help my lack of faith. You know, I think I have faith. Yeah. I, hope I, enough. I love that and have prayed it many a time. <laughs> what do you think of the last line? It mystifies me, Rock. I don't. I I just think evil is real, and um, and that there is a devil, you know, and um, and we're locked in some kind of a battle. Um, uh, I just can't read that out of all of these scriptures that we've encountered. Certainly, it seems like some of this looks like an epileptic fit to me, you know, mm -hmm. what it describes. Um, but the people that lived in, and the, certainly the people in that time and place had beliefs that probably modern science has replaced with different ways of seeing things. But I just don't think you can read this totally out of the, the story. Um, sure. um, you know, I, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but principalities and power sometimes. Um, and it's a real wrestling match. Mm -hmm. Did you have any thoughts? Well, I was, for me, you know, the idea of surrogate requires prayer. One of the things I appreciate about that is it doesn't say, like, faith or certainty or try and have it in one of the concrete ways like they were talking about earlier 
about the rules. If you do these things, then this will happen kind of rigid manner. And so it's sort of that fear of the child's sick, the doubt of what can we do. And instead of it being a certain thing, like here's your shot, it becomes more of a thing of like prayer, a ve- like a vessel, like you're the vessel of God. Like what does prayer offer? You know, offer for the person praying, but who we pray for, it's like an opening instead of it's more of an open for me, malleable thing than a really sort of rigid, uh, way to to move into uh trying to heal the child does that make sense mm-hmm. yeah and i think you know the other part of it is um it reminds the disciples you're not doing this on your own authority mm-hmm. you're not doing this on your own power and even jesus <laughs> Praise for him to be delivered from whatever this is, you know, demon or um, epileptic fit or um, that that, uh, we are called to tap into an authority that is beyond us. Mm -hmm. Well, once again, just because of time, I'm going to push this. You want to read that last section and we'll wrap up chapter nine. Okay, so chapter 9, starting at verse 30. From there, Jesus and his followers went through Galilee, but he didn't want anyone to know it. This was because he was teaching his disciples, the human one will be delivered into human hands. They will kill him. Three days after he is killed, he will rise up. But they didn't understand this kind of talk, and they were afraid to ask him. They entered Capernaum. When they had come into a house, he asked them, what are you arguing about during the journey? They didn't respond since on the way they had been debating with each other about who was the greatest. He sat down to call the 12 and said, whoever wants to be first, be the be least of all and the servant of all. Jesus reached for a child, placed him among the 12, and embraced him. And then he said, whoever welcomes one of these children into, in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me isn't actually welcoming me, but rather the one who sent me. John said to Jesus, teacher, We saw someone throwing demons out in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Jesus replied, don't stop him. No one who does powerful acts in my name can quickly turn around and curse me. Whoever isn't against us is for us. I assure you that whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will certainly be rewarded. As whoever causes these little ones who believe in me to trip and fall into sin, it would be better for them to have a huge stone hung around their necks and to be thrown into the lake. If your hand causes you to fall into sin, chop it off. It's better for you to enter into life crippled than to go away with two hands into the fire of hell, which can't. Uh, can't be put out. 
If your foot causes you to fall into sin, chop it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to be thrown into hell with two feet. If your eyes causes you to fall into sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter God's kingdom with one eye than to be thrown into hell with two. That's a place where worms don't die and the fire never goes out. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salt again? Maintain salt among yourselves and keep peace with each other. What'd you hear? Why don't we just close this conversation out? (laughs) (laughs) So there's a lot of practical in here. Um, You know, this echoes many of the things that are in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. But uh, uh, just a couple quick things, and yeah, we can. Uh, end it quickly, um, uh, unless you guys have more, and I always open to that. Um, we have the story of the guy who's um, throwing out demons in Jesus' name. He's like, don't stop him. <laughs> That's a good thing. Um, whether he's with us or not, you know, he couldn't do it if he weren't with us, whether you think he's with us or not. Um, and I think of how often um, we have these uh, mental barriers to define who's in and who's out. Um, and God is the one who defines who's in and who's out, not us. Um, it goes back to those rules, right? Well, if he's not in our camp, then he's really not a great. I mean, it's sort of like, right. Again, Jesus is like, forget those rules. Look what he's doing. <laughs> the proofs in the pudding. Yeah. Um, he's on our side. <laughs> um, and then he goes into um, what is obviously metaphor. Um they're talking about plugging out your eye and chopping off your hand or your foot. Um, there's one of the um, church fathers who um, took this very literally, um, but we won't get into that. Um, you know, always, always be careful when Jesus talks metaphor, don't take him literally. And when Jesus is literal, don't take him figuratively. Um, but this idea of uh, being thrown into hell and the, um, the word for hell there is Gehenna. And we could get into hours on this, but that was the garbage dump for Jerusalem. Verse 46 is not in some of the oldest translations, or verse 48, excuse me, is not some in the, some of the oldest translations, but that's where we get the worms never die and the fire never goes out. Um, this idea of um, hell being this dump of Jerusalem um, because it's just nasty and stinking and the fires are always burning to consume the, what is vile. Um, and um, that's very different. Um, there's a, you can do a lot of work and see very clearly. Most of our concept of hell comes from Dante, not Jesus, or from the Bible. Um, and the uh, this idea of what is tossed into hell, it's destroyed, you know, immediately, not eternal torment um it's a very different image it's incinerated 
Yeah. Uh, but the idea of uh, don't lose the nature of what you need to be, you know, salt. If salt ain't salty, it's not salt anymore. Uh, Once again, a rough paraphrase of, of what Jesus is saying here. Um, keep, keep your saltiness. Uh, now salty, uh, somebody who's salty is not a good thing, but uh, in Jesus' time, the metaphor was different. They lived in a desert. I'm in verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. It conjures up the sermon you gave a couple of weeks ago about cooking down the the, the stew or the um, like, yeah. the chili. And um, salt kind of, um, we come to our essence um, often through trial. Mm-hmm. Um, the fire refines us. It makes us more who we are, less dilute, more concentrated. Um, it exposes what's really there. That's sort of what I hear in, in that. Yeah, it makes the chili better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, like we all know, chili and spaghetti sauce is always better the second day. After those spices have been given a night to work its way in, and I, I think that's the way our faith needs to be. We need to, you know, um, let it sit for a while. Uh-huh. That's when it really uh, rises to uh, what it's meant to be. Oh. And the nicest part for me too, in the very last sentence, is maintaining salt among yourselves and keep peace with each other. So it's the invitation for community. So it's like adding flavor. I mean, I, I also am aware like salt can create bitterness as well, you know? And so, um, but thinking about keeping the flavor of things or keeping the sense of in a community and not having it be an isolated solitary um, experience. And he uses salt, not sugar, you know, being a Christian is not nice. about being sugary. Um, the salt is more valuable. Right. right? And it, it preserves food. Um, it's a preservation. These sort of difficult passages um, just say to me, um, Jesus is acknowledging that being a Christian isn't necessarily going to be easy. Yeah. It requires some effort. It's going to hurt at times, um, but it's going to be worth it. Right. There's that wonderful C.S. Lewis quote, I didn't become a Christian uh, to feel happy. If I wanted that, I would have gotten a good bottle of port. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's about uh, being transformed. That preservation, just like Gay said. Yeah. Our way to happiness sometimes leads through some difficult. No growth without pain. Mm-hmm. True happiness. Yeah. 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 The real stuff. Or the word joy. Yeah. <laughs> that even in our misery, we have our joy. Um, and he wants our joy to be complete. Thanks be to God. Anything else, folks? This has been a great conversation. Thank you for wrestling with seven, eight, and nine. Um, it's been a great conversation. Gay, thank you for joining us. Sure. Yes. Thank yeah, you, guys. Thank you.
Thank you all very much. This is a this lot has of been fun. a lot of fun. Well, we will be back next week with uh, chapters 10, 11, and 12. And uh, Bob Hughes will be our uh, special guest next week. And so we invite you to be back with us for week four on uh, Wrestling with Mark. God bless and have a great night. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Bye.